If you have a Bible, um, please could you open it to the letter to the Ephesians? It's in the New Testament, and uh, it's one of Paul's letters, so it comes after Galatians. And just before Philippians, you'll find it tucked in there. And I want to read to you from the first chapter. Now, we began our series in this letter last week. We introduced the letter and looked at how Paul calls us to attention in these first couple of verses, speaking profound truth in very few words. But immediately, it's quite an unusual letter because immediately what he does after having uh, introduced himself and addressed the hearers, immediately he launches into this long benediction or kind of almost a song or a prayer of praise that runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. We're going to read the whole section because it very much belongs as a unit together. But as you'll quickly discern when we're reading it, there's far too much to pick apart here. It'll... When you read it in one sitting, it's almost overwhelming the number of ideas Paul piles one on top of another. And so what we're going to do is just focus on the first few verses, verse 3 to 6 today, and look at just one theme that emerges out of these verses, and that he's teaching effectively to the Christians, to the church, in and through this prayer of praise. So I'll read to you the whole section, verse 3 to 14, but just keep in mind that we're only going to focus on the first uh, few verses. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts. Give us the ability to understand and to see your truth in all its glory. Amen. Well, we began our journey in this letter last week, and one of the things that you will have understood immediately is that Paul was the founder of this church that he's now writing to. He'd been there some years previously and spent, unusually for Paul, three years in the one place, preaching almost every day at length for many hours and teaching the gospel to the Ephesians. And there had been unbelievable success in the founding and growth of that church, which meant that his name lived in, among that congregation as a kind of legendary figure. 
the reason that they were strong, the reason they existed in many senses. So he was the founder of the church, but also the apostle to the church, someone who exercised a kind of oversight and leadership and felt a sense of responsibility for its well-being, that even though he was now many, many miles away in prison, uh, he still carried in his heart a passion for this church. And so he writes to them, and what he writes is really what's upmost in his mind and on his heart that they need to hear in order for them to be strengthened. And one of the reasons why I think we have to pay uh, very close attention to the Apostle Paul and what he has to say is just what an unusual man he was. He was the rarest type of leader in that he seemed to be able to combine, on the one hand, a superior um, intellect and theological mind that he is without question one of the most influential people who have ever lived on account of the things that he understood, uh, that he then wrote about, and all of this kind of emerged as something fresh on the scene. This, not that he preached anything different to what had gone before, but that he understood it to new depths and new um, extent, so that he, when he wrote about the gospel and wrote about the plan of God, he was writing as one who had never, bef- as someone um, with a unique insight, plumbed the depths of these things. And so this incredible intellect, you're encountering the work of a genius when you read Paul's letters, and they have taxed and challenged the best of minds all through the last 2,000 years. But at the same time, what's interesting about him is that despite his intellectual rigor and ability and profundity, he was also a radical practitioner of the things that he believed and taught, so that his was not um, the kind of theology that belongs in an ivory tower. Increasingly common in our day, you'll find theologians whose whole lives are dedicated to the study of the Bible or theology, but who have very little engagement with the church. But Paul was not that kind of a person. He lived very much the life of a missionary. He lived on the road. He lived traveling from town to town, whether walking or by ship. He experienced hardships. He never knew where his next meal would be coming from at times in his life. He was uh, poor, and he was often without a roof over his head. And he labored hard to plant congregations, to start churches like this, where gatherings of disciples would be committed to one another and committed to Jesus and form a community. That was his life's passion and his desire. He wasn't content just to remain with ideas. He was very much experienced and practiced in seeing how these ideas changed lives and formed communities. And it is this beautiful combination that comes through when you're reading him so that you really are reading work that is utterly life-changing. It's not merely theoretical. It has a take-home relevance and power to it, but neither is it the superficial kind of practical how-to stuff that we're so often used to in our day and age because it's rooted and grounded in the deep things of God. And so when you read Paul, you have to, at one and the same time, be prepared to stretch your mind but also engage your heart and be willing to change. So what does he want to say? And you immediately discover upon opening this letter that he doesn't make things easy for us or for his original readers. He was not, for example, immediately jumping to the practical aspects of the faith. You read throughout the letter to the Ephesians, you'll discover it gets immensely practical, but only in the second half of the letter. Before he's talking to them about the how-tos, he's much more grounding them in the theology, 
the theory, the understanding of the faith that we believe. And so I think this is something that we in our day and age struggle with because we have little patience with this kind of way of doing thought and engagement. We are happy to engage with complex ideas as long as they've been reduced down to a 17-minute TED talk with about 16 takeaways that you can immediately implement so that the complex issues of life are really simplified. We're not particularly patient with this this kind of approach and the density of what we're dealing with here. And friends, it's not therefore that practical to begin with, nor is it lightweight. I think Paul would have been somewhat horrified if he'd walked onto the Christian scene in our day and age to hear preachers or to see the books that are stocked on the shelves of what used to be Christian bookshops. They don't much exist anymore, uh, mostly online, isn't it? But you know, I think he'd be pretty horrified at the, the superficiality of so much of thinking and engagement of the Christian church. And he unashamedly wants to delve into the deep things immediately. And why is that, why is that his approach? You have to reckon with that so that you are willing to engage yourself with these things. And the answer, it seems to me, is that when Paul was reflecting on the life of a church like this, the thing that he was most aware of was the fragility of the church in a a world in which this was a new movement bursting onto the scene and in which there were many forces that would want to distort and destroy what he had spent his life seeking to build. When he was last with the leaders of the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders, he had warned them and told them that after his departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, you have to understand the problem here. Paul was writing and speaking in a day and age in which they did not have a New Testament. So the things that we believe and take for granted about the gospel were not, had not been written down until letters like the letter to the Ephesians were written. So Christians had to embody the message in themselves and repeat it orally to one another through preaching and teaching and learning so that it lived, as it were, among the community. But you can appreciate that when things aren't written down, they can easily get lost, forgotten, or distorted. So when Paul was, was speaking to these Ephesian elders, he's saying, look, as soon as I'm gone, there are going to be forces come from outside and from inside that want to take away what is yours, to distort the message, to corrupt the church, to cause it to rot from the ground up, from the foundations up, and that will be the death of the church. And then he reminds them of his practice. He tells them that he has labored in order to make them well-founded upon the truth. He said, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he said, I spent my, my energy day after day trying to open up for you the full panorama of God's work in this world so that you could somehow absorb the beauty, the magnificence, the majesty, the complexity of these things that we as Christians believe. Because the Christian faith is not simple, friends. There are simple elements to it. But it is is more than you or I could ever fully comprehend. And he said, I spent all these years opening all of this up to you. 
And my fear is that it'll be lost. And because he saw the, the, the existence of the church as pivoting upon their ability to understand and then live out the truth, it was always his urgent priority to bring Christians back to the word of God, to the deep things of God, and to the things that he had perceived and understood. And so he unashamedly launches into a moment like this in Ephesians 1, where he is unfolding idea after idea after idea in a way that stretches you and exhausts you at times if you spend any amount of time trying to grapple with and understand this, but then excites you and rejuvenates you and changes your life ultimately, but not in a quick fix kind of way. It seems to me then that his approach was a little bit like lighting a fire. If you've ever lit a fire in a fireplace or in a bonfire, you have to begin with highly flammable materials. You begin with paper and kindling, and if you're cheating, maybe some fire lighters or something like that, and you get the fire going. There's lots of heat to begin with, but these materials, they burn out quickly. And in order to sustain the fire, you have to quickly begin adding larger and larger pieces of wood, harder to light, but they sustain their heat over a longer period. And something like that goes on in the life of the Christian. When you first come to know Jesus, it is the simplicity of understanding for the first time in your life, he loves me. And of recognizing that when he was nailed to that cross and his lifeblood flowed from his body and he exhaled his last breath and gave his life to his father, He did it for you in order to take away the punishment for your sin. And these truths are enough. They get the fire going. But before long, if that's where you remain, you may find that your heart grows dull. Not that that could ever be dull in and of itself, but that it has to be built up and structure needs to be brought to your faith and depth and, and, and you have to go deeper. You have to mature. The New Testament tells us that, it's not, that we shouldn't remain content with milk, but go on to meat as an analogy of the way that the Christian and the church as a whole has to grow. And so Paul unashamedly gives the Christians meat. And therefore, when we're getting into this, we're getting into complex ideas, difficult things, things that may be hard, be, uh, at first may be difficult to receive. And I want to ask you the question then, what is it that Paul has at the top of his mind, as he's beginning to teach this church in Ephesus and impart to them truth that they must grasp and understand and receive if they are to live and to survive as Christians. And the answer, it seems, comes across right at the start of this prayer of benediction. And I want to, I want to front load the doctrine part of this and just tell you what I think the teaching is and then we'll, we'll, we'll grapple with it. And what he does is he immediately teaches them what is being called the doctrine of election or the teaching, doctrine just means teaching, the teaching about God's choice of individuals and people to be part of his family. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him. Now, Some of you, I know that as soon as you mention a phrase like the doctrine of election, there are multiple reactions in the room. Some are just intimidated by the words. 
Some, this is brand new. You have never heard anything of this kind, and therefore you're kind of intrigued. What does this mean? For some of you, this is old news. You've, you've already received it. You recognize it. It's precious truth to you. For some of you, this is something you've grappled with in your, in your past and rejected. And now hearing me speak about it, it confirms all your suspicions about me. And you thought, well, I knew, I knew he was one of those guys. And, you know, the, the people, we get tarnished with the name Calvinist because it's a very polarizing name. After the, John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s, a preacher in the church in Geneva, you can go visit the same um, church building where he was. <clears throat> and he was a polarizing figure, even in his day and to this day, the most famous teacher and exponent of this particular idea. So the idea has become named after him. But it wasn't his idea. It's there in Scripture. In fact, it's not only in a passage like this, it's all the way through the Bible, but it's actually most prominently taught by Jesus himself. In John's Gospel, for example, his articulated in Christ's own words. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Or a little bit further on, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, I want to very quickly then ask you, what is, what is it that's being taught here? Just to clarify, bring clarity to this phrase, this idea, this teaching. And really what we're dealing with here is the answer to the question, why you're a, why you're a Christian, if indeed you are. Of course, I'm not assuming everyone here tonight is. But if you are a Christian, we're answering the question why you are a Christian. And you and I know, and we can both agree, that on the surface of things, you will say, well, it's because I believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian tonight, I really think that's the most important thing you have to grasp and understand, certainly on your way into the Christian faith. Jesus died for you. If you believe in him, you belong to him. And that certainly is a valid answer. But if you want to press this a little bit more deeply, you then have to ask the question, but why did you believe? And why did you believe when others do not or have not believed? What it distinguished you from others around you such that you heard these things and they resonated with you as truth and you felt that resonance in your gut and you said, I know this is, this is gospel truth. And you have different ways of reacting to that question. <clears throat> For some people, they say, well, there's something special about me, clearly. I'm cleverer than that person over there, or I'm a little bit more moral, or I'm something or the other. And so you might find the answer to the question of why you believe in yourself. The Bible never does that. The Bible says the, the fundamental answer to the question of why you believe, even when others do not, is because of God. Because of God's action on your life. Because he went after you. Because he chose you, which is what the word elect means. Because he called you and you felt the summons of that call. Now, just in case you think I'm going crazy or making all this up, I want to show you how clearly this comes across in Paul's teaching here. And we'll get into the importance of it a little later, but listen. He says it in at least four different ways, just in the first section. And it comes through the whole, the whole prayer of praise. But he says, for example, in verse 4, Even as he chose us in him. 
The language of choosing there, the language of election, is the language of God making his, setting his eyes upon individuals and peoples to say, I want you. I want you. Back in the 90s, um, there was a Christian band called Delirious who used to sing a song, I Found Jesus. And it was a brilliant song. I loved it. And, you know, we sing it, belt it out at the top of our lungs, uh, watching them play. But actually, it was wrong. It was the wrong way around. The fundamental idea here is not that you found Jesus, but that he found you. And anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time, as they reflect back on their story, will understand that with hindsight, you perceive the whole experience of coming to Christ very differently from how it felt in the moment. When you were drawn to spiritual things, <clears throat> becoming aware that you need hope, becoming aware that you need help for your guilty conscience, that you need to be reconciled to your maker, when that drive was awakening in you, you found yourself making decisions and pursuing things and a spiritual hunger growing in you. And that's how you saw it there and then. But when you have become a Christian, and particularly as your faith grows and you, you kind of reflect more over time, you look back on the experience of how you came to faith and you begin to tell the story backwards. And it's not so much what happened in you that caused you to pursue God, but you begin to see the way in which he was after you all along. How he arranged for experiences and moments in your life that provoked an appetite in you, how he put the right person in your life at the right time, how you were receptive to the gospel at a moment when you were ready, how what seemed to you crazy at one stage suddenly seemed to you to be true. And you don't attribute any of this to yourself and claim credit that you made the decision because you were smart, you were able, or you, were, you had spiritual insight, but rather you attribute it and you give all the glory to the God who went after you. There's a poem, it's about 100 years old, by a man called Francis Thompson. It seems to articulate this in a vivid metaphor. The poem is titled, The Hound of Heaven. And of course, he was writing at a time when hounds were used widely in hunting, dogs that were bred to catch the scent of the animal you were chasing, and then would run tirelessly until they wear down the prey and you catch what you're after. And he uses this as a kind of shocking metaphor for the way God goes after you. He said, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I was, I was running away. I wasn't running towards, I was running away. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. But then he goes on and says, from those strong feet that followed, followed after. You can imagine that experience of running away from a persistent hound and how you hear the drumming of the feet behind you. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat the unrelenting pursuit of God after you. I have a friend who is a pastor of a church in South Africa in a place called East London. And he 
when he was a young man, um, growing up, uh, he was a believer, but he'd gone to Bible college and somehow his faith had ended up shipwrecked. And uh, he was, ended up living a life that he was then ashamed of. He was engaged in all kinds of sexual promiscuity and drinking and these kinds of things. And he was off the rails, as we say. One day he went to, to, to a church and when he was in the congregation, there had been a terrorist incident that broke out in the church. You will know that decades ago things were very troubled in South Africa. And some gunmen had come in and shot members of the congregation. And on the back of this, this was in the early 90s, Nelson Mandela wrote to the surviving members of that church who'd been present on that day and hand-signed these letters and just said, this is not the way we want to be and to go. And he still has that letter in his possession to this day. But what lived with him was the sense that I survived And it brought him to his senses. And he became aware of his need to get right with God again. He'd been going to church, but only doing through the motions, right? And suddenly he was shaken to life again. Gave his life back to Jesus. And now decades later, just a few months ago, he had tattooed up his forearm an image of the hound as a constant reminder of the hound of heaven who comes in pursuit of us. He chose us in him, Paul says. Not only that, but he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Which is to say, you contributed nothing because you didn't even exist, friend. He went after you even before you were you. Now, Some people try and turn this backwards and do logical games and say, well, it's because God knew who was going to follow him. So he chose those ones. But that's just playing Games with words. That's not at all what Paul's saying. He's saying he chose us before the foundation of the world. And then he puts it another way. He says in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. In other words, he picked you out. You know, it's possible even in these days as parents are looking to adopt that there is a kind of matchmaking process whereby they can go and have a measure of choice in the question of whether they will or will not adopt a child. And what Paul is saying here is he pre-appointed or predetermined who those people would be that would be adopted into his family, God's family. God went after us in that way. And then he says it was all according to the purpose of his will. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Which means, friends, in answer to the question of why you're a Christian, yes, you made a choice. But that's not the basic reason. The reason is that he made a choice. It was according to the purpose of his will. And this is the doctrine of election, friends. Now, I want to very briefly deal with a few objections before I turn to some of the positive aspects of this. And I know that immediately, if this is new to you, or maybe it's not, but there is resistance sometimes in hearts because it sounds objectionable for many reasons, and I don't have time to get into all of them and not even to deal with these adequately. But I'll list you a few just to signal an awareness that I'm conscious of what the problems are. One of the chief objections people raise to this is the question of whether it's fair. How can it be fair that God should call some and not others? 
And the only answer that has ever satisfied me to that question is to say, of course it's not fair. If we wanted fair, fair would be that God would overlook us all, condemn us all as unworthy and undeserving. And that's fair. Grace, the undeserved gift, is when God goes after you and calls you and chooses you despite no qualifying features in you. That's grace. And if it were anything else, it would not be grace. If you somehow were better or more deserving, it would no longer be grace. And grace cannot, by definition, be fair. It's his kindness to save us that is not fair and that somehow has upturned justice except that Christ died for our sins. Is it fair? No, it's not. And that's the whole point. Another way in which people object to this is they say, well, what about free will? How can our decisions mean anything and our will mean anything and our choice mean anything, whether to accept or to reject, if all of this was somehow unfolding according to God's plan and purpose? And I will say up front, this is the impossible question to unravel. And I cannot give you a satisfying answer to this except to affirm with all my heart that the Bible constantly says it matters what you do and what you choose. That God holds you responsible for the choices you make in your life. So that from our perspective, we absolutely have to acknowledge and choose him. But how that sits, the reality of human responsibility, how that sits with what I'm talking to you about, the, the sovereignty and the might of God and his will, I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And I know that for some of you that will be very dissatisfying. It sounds like a cop-out, doesn't it? Except I will say this in defense. First of all, I would expect that there are aspects of truth concerning a God who is beyond our comprehension that I cannot comprehend. And that it is only human arrogance that demands that we must understand and reconcile everything. We're dealing with the God who is beyond our ability to perceive or understand in his majesty and scope and scale and largeness. There is going to be stuff that's beyond us. And I'd also say this, that actually this isn't a problem that exists only for people who teach what I'm teaching today. This problem of reconciling these issues exists within every worldview. And even in philosophy. It's true that even atheist philosophers have wrestled with this challenge between is, are we determined or is there such a thing as free will? Because free will is a deeply problematic concept. If you keep asking the question why you choose a certain thing and you go right down into your motives and behind them and behind them and you say, why did you choose it? Well, because I was persuaded to. Why were you persuaded? Well, because I saw the evidence and it convinced me. But why were you convinced? And you go back and back and back and ask the question behind the question behind the question, say, why, why, why? Eventually, you're going to come down to one of two choices. You're either going to say, well, because this tipped me this way, in which case I would have questioned, well, was your choice free? Or was it determined in some way? Or you say, there was no reason. In which case, I'll ask you, well, was your choice random? Now, I know that some of this is going to fly straight over one or two heads just because it's new ideas. And it took me a long time to grasp and understand this myself. And I don't think it's going to be profitable for us to sit and dwell here on this concept for very long. Just a brief foray into some philosophy there. All I'm trying to help you to see, friends, 
is that whenever you're delving into these questions, you're delving into the deep things that have bested the most, the most able minds in history. And much ink has been spilled on these questions, not just among Christians, but in every worldview. And so, friends, please don't be surprised if there are aspects to this that somehow elude us and evade us and that we find difficult to grasp. All I can say emphatically is that the Bible teaches without any embarrassment that God is sovereign and it also teaches that your choices matter. Another objection that's raised here is the one, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? The idea there seems to be just how utterly terrifying it would be if someone says, look, I wanted to be a Christian, but I, I just, you know, I wanted to believe or I, I wanted to have Christ, but I found myself outside of God's choice. And friend, I will say to you that the Bible never, ever allows us to think that way. Everyone who wants Jesus can have him. And anyone who has even a flicker of faith that's put in and light, lit in their hearts to say yes to Christ, friend, that is all the indication that's ever needed that God has set his eyes upon you and called you to be part of his family. Now, I'm well aware, as I said, that there, is far more, there are many more questions that can, we could get into and talk about at length, but I don't want to do that. What I want to now do is just put before you what are the positive reasons why Paul wants us to grasp this, why he saw this as such a high priority that Christians have to understand this and get it down into their gut and their soul and why it would change their lives and establish them on the truth. Let me show you a few things. One is this, that this teaching will set your mind and your heart on fire. I think all the evidence you ought to need on that is the life of the Apostle Paul himself, who had this unmatched vision of the might of God and who lived a life of total abandon to God's purposes. Would that we all saw what Paul saw, then we might turn the world upside down. His heart was on fire. And John Calvin, when he was writing about this particular passage in Ephesians, he said this, he said, the lofty terms in which he extols the grace of God, in which Paul extols the grace of God toward the Ephesians, are intended to rouse their hearts to gratitude, to set them all on flame, to fill them even to overflowing with this thought. And it does seem to me that whenever a person wrestles with this stuff and takes the time to grasp and understand it, there is something of a spiritual revival that takes place inside that person and their eyes are opened for the first time, they begin to see God in a whole new way. Sometimes that can be a little sinister. There is a, you know, it can be a little fanatic. There's, there's a well-known phenomenon that when people first encounter these ideas, because it's not intuitive, right? None of us would guess this. But when you first read it in Scripture, and it, or someone teaches it to you, and it settles into your heart, they call it cage-stage Calvinism. It's usually typical of young men, especially, who then want to get into theological arguments and debates with everyone around them to convince everyone that this is the truth. And, you know, I'm not advocating for any of that. But what I am saying is that it does something to you. It lights a fire inside you. It really awakens a passion for God. And why is that the case? And the answer, simple answer is because, friends, what we are describing here is the biggest vision of God. That he's large and in charge that he's sovereign, that he's able, that he's mighty, 
that he can save those whom he intends to save, that he's not powerless and just hoping for the best. It's said of the Grand Canyon in the USA that it's one of the few places that will always exceed your expectations. There are many places, aren't there, that are marketed to us as destinations to go and see that often there's a little bit of Photoshop at work or some other way, you know, it's just happened to be a nice day, good weather when they took the photo and we convinced to go to these places and we end up disappointed. But the Grand Canyon is not one of those places. They say that when you go there, and I hope one day to make the trip myself, that whatever you've seen on TV, whatever photos you've seen, are as nothing when you begin to see it with your own eyes. And it seems to me that a theology that exceeds your expectations is by necessity true. A vision of God that's bigger than you thought he was is by necessity true because God is beyond measure in his greatness. And when this gets into your gut and into your heart, it sets your heart on fire. Not only does it give you fire, it also gives you strength and robust sort of fortitude. I know this from having watched precious friends and family members suffer. I think that's one of the times when your theology is really put to the test. And whether you can acknowledge that God is truly sovereign and those who say it with all their hearts are those who find themselves steering a steady path through the storm. John Piper put it like this. He said that the doctrine of election tends to give firmness and fiber to flabby minds. Firmness and fiber to flabby minds. It's just admitting there that many of us are flabby spiritually. Like we have a loose idea of the truth, but it's not precise. It's not defined. It's not concrete. It's not, it's not built with conviction and set in such a way that it's unshakable. And you need to get there if you're to survive. He says it gives firmness and fiber to flabby minds. It tends to produce robust, thoughtful Christians who are not swept away. That's why this truth matters. This is why he, want, he was so urgent to tell the Ephesian church. He's saying, fierce wolves will come in among you. You have to grasp this, the greatness of the God who's gone after you. It will set your mind and your heart on fire. Another thing it will do is it will begin to awaken in you the deepest humility and gratitude when you call yourself a child of God. Now for me, this is the most precious and important reason to believe and relish these truths and really it comes down to this and I touched on this earlier but consider this again it comes down to the issue of who gets the credit when you become a follower of Jesus and you really have to bring it down to two choices are you a Christian because because of you and in which case, you made a good choice and you can pat yourself on the back and feel really proud about yourself. You're, you're pretty special, friend. Is that the reason? Or do you acknowledge, no, I'm, I'm a Christian because of him. I cooperated, of course, but I recognize, I can see, clear as day, I would not be here if it were not for him. And that, my friends, is grace. That's the doctrine of grace. Paul knew this better than anyone. This is why his heart was so aflame. 
He looked at his own life and he said, there was no part of me that wanted Jesus. Nothing in me wanted him. I hated him. I wanted to murder his followers. I wanted to destroy the church. And I was guilty of the worst sins. He says I was the worst of sinners. But he said, this was so that God's mercy could be shown, that he come after me. That's grace, friend. When you understand how undeserving you are, so that this has to be attributed to the goodness of God that you are what you are in Christ. That there's no other explanation that you can ultimately point to. And so what this teaching does is it kind of simultaneously offers us the lowest possible view of human nature and the highest view of God. What I mean is that if, if you don't believe this stuff, then what you're trying to do is carve out a little bit of human nature that's good enough and, and, and able enough to choose God. But the Apostle Paul would say, no, 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 there was no part of you that was able. He'll go on in the next chapter and say, you were dead in your sins. How can a dead person choose God? You were dead in your sins. You were totally unworthy. And then you go on to say that faith was given to you as a gift. So this is the lowest possible view of human nature. And so it humbles us to the ground. We look at ourselves and realize there was nothing deserving in us. We are nothing. There's nothing lovely. Nothing worthy. And that's not a condemning or crushing truth. It's a liberating truth because then you look at him and you say, well, it was all him. And so it magnifies God and his grace. And doesn't try to claw back a little bit of credit for ourselves and guard off a little bit of ability, human ability, and say, well, there was something special about me. No, 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 you say, there's nothing in me. It was all him. So this teaching creates the humblest posture and the highest vision of who God is, even that he would, as Paul puts it here, adopt us into his family. You had no status, but then God gave you status he gave you privilege he gave you titles as a child of God every Roman citizen knew what adoption meant it meant that you inherited everything not because you earned it but because they chose you and that's what Paul's saying it'll awaken the deepest humility and gratitude that's why this whole thing is a prayer of praise blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ he says and you'll never really learn to praise with total abandon until you understand that it is all him. Another thing it will do is it will create within you the most profound sense of security and safety. Now, let me explain this because this has very often been one of the most liberating truths that people have understood when they've grasped these things. Look at the, look at, consider the alternative for a second. If you are ultimately a Christian because you made the, well, the right choice, then what's stopping you from reversing that choice? What happens if you change your mind? What happens if you fail to live up to your own decision? And many, many people through the ages have been agonized with that question to the point of absolute terror and a deep sense of insecurity in which they say, well, 
I don't know. I'm not certain that I'm safe. And it creates a kind of torture of spirit and agony and torment even. But what we're reckoning with here is that it was all God in the first place. He came after you, friend. And if it all depends on him, and it's all past tense as well, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, so it's all been accomplished even before you were born, then there is nothing that can shake you loose from his grip. You belong to him. It's a done deal. And that does something to the spirit. It gives solidity and courage to the Christian to live out who they now are without fear, without doubt, without wavering or anxiety. I am in Christ. Let me show you one last thing that this teaching does. It gives you a sense of unshakable hope in this life that keeps you going, that keeps you persevering, that keeps you enduring. Let me explain this to you, brothers and sisters. If you ask me, what is the greatest threat and danger to a Christian's perseverance with Christ? I think there are many things that can cause us trouble, but they're not the biggest problem. So you could say, well, is it, is it ridicule and mockery and even persecution in some parts of the world? I say, well, look, at this is a real issue, but that's not the deepest problem. Is it doubt, intellectual doubt? I say, well, yeah, definitely that's a big issue, but it's not the biggest issue. Is it sin and temptation? I say, absolutely, these are huge problems, but it's not the deepest, biggest problem that Christians face. What's the deepest problem? The problem that could knock you out, the problem that could knock you down, the problem that could cause you to give up? And I'll, I'll answer, it's this. It's when you begin to despair and lose hope because you feel you failed too many times to count. It's not the sin itself. The sin can be dealt with. It's the sense that, of unbelief that begins to creep in. I'm not, I can't do this. So many Christians, having been battered, bow out. We use a phrase, don't we, of falling off the wagon when people are trying to get their lives straight in some way or other. How once that happens, it can be so hard to, to get things back in order because it's like, well, I failed, so I'm just going to give way to failure. You know, I, I, I've already broken my promises, so I may as well go all the way. And there's something perverted, isn't there, in the human mind that that's, that's how we deal with failure. We compound it with more failure. And I think I've seen that story play out too many times than I care to remember. And that would be a valid reason to give up if it depended on you. But what Paul says here, he said, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, no one alive today is blameless. So what Paul is talking about is some end goal. The end project. And he's tying the end goal to the reality of God's decision in eternity past in this unbreakable thread. It's called the golden chain in Romans 8 when Paul describes this. Between your predestination and calling 
and your glorification when you will be like Jesus. And it's a chain that cannot be cut because God doesn't give up on what he's begun. I'm a terrible completer finisher. I have so many things. My life is littered with projects that I've begun and then give up on. I was one of those guys who tried to make sourdough during lockdown. I made about three loaves. They got slightly better, and then I just thought, this is too much effort. I'd rather go to Tesco. I'm not a good completer finisher. And very, people who are, I admire a great deal. But the Bible tells us God is, is a completer finisher. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as the founder and perfecter or the author and finisher of our faith. He began it in you. He'll bring it to completion. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. It cannot be broken. Which means that you can rest back into that promise. And you can say, I know I failed, but Jesus doesn't give up on me. I'm ashamed of myself and I've I'll bring it to him and I'll confess it. But I know he wants me. And I know he'll continue his work in my life. And I know that ultimately I'm going to be made like Jesus. And all of this mess that's inside me is going to be dealt with. And I won't have the agony and torture of my own temptation. And the problem of my conscience that so often I trample on. Because then I'll want him entirely. And this teaching gives you that robust, confident faith that you can't get when you think that your faith depends on you. Because you'll fail, you're fickle. We're a notoriously fickle generation, aren't we? So easily giving up on our commitments. What hope do we have of committing to God in the ultimate commitment? Thankfully, he commits to us. And he never lets you go when you let this stuff sink deeply into your soul you can turn away from the past and live in continual repentance because you know he wants you he desires you and he wants to make you like Jesus and he's not going to stop until he has accomplished that desire This is life-giving truth, friends. It's truth he wanted the Ephesian church to know. It's truth that you have to understand in order to grow stronger as a believer. 